Welcome to the PubCast, your inside look at electronic publishing. From ebooks to websites to podcasts and more, join us as we interview the professionals on the cutting edge of publishing. My name is Pollock Patel. I'm a graduate student at Emerson College, and I'm here talking to Kelly Stout, who is the senior editor of the Special Projects Desk at Gizmodo. Hi, Kelly. Hi. So why don't you just give me a brief overview to start with about your job at Gizmodo, because senior editor of the Special Projects Desk is pretty confusing when you first look at it. Sure. Uh, Well, the Special Projects Desk is a newly created group at Gizmodo Media Group. Gizmodo Media Group owns a bunch of websites. Deadspin, uh, which is a sports blog, Jezebel, a blog for women, the flagship site, Gizmodo, which is a tech site and a tech culture site, Fusion, uh, which is a site focused on uh, social justice, politics, and a couple other sites, uh, Kotaku, which is about gaming, and Jalopnik, which is about cars, and uh, a few other sites. Um, And so the Special Projects Desk is a group of nine reporters and editors who um, do investigative work that takes a little bit longer than a typical blog might. Um, so the kind of stuff that we work on um, is we just uh, we just did a big piece on dark money, which is the phenomenon where uh, big millionaire donors can circumvent political spending laws um, by sort of disguising who they are by giving their money to 501c3 nonprofits and having that then go to other political causes. So we just wrapped up a big piece on that and how dark money is financing this thing called the Convention of States, which is um, a project that the, that billionaires on the right wing are excited about um, <laughs> to essentially rewrite the Constitution. Um, so we just finished up that. Uh, we are working on reporting on Sebastian Gorka, one of Donald Trump's um, advisors on counterterrorism. Uh, we've done work on Betsy DeVos. It's mostly political stuff with some exceptions. But the Special Projects Desk basically is not. We're free from the daily demands of a blog in the way that uh you know, we haven't before. We're a newly created group, so we're still sort of figuring out exactly what we're doing. I am the senior editor of that group, so what I do is I work with the writers to figure out what their stories are going to be about, shape them, help them with reporting, figuring out what exactly to focus on and how, and then once they turn in their drafts, help them focus the story and tell it in a meaningful way. All right, that's really interesting, actually, especially considering all the stuff that you have work that you're working on now that's so important politically it's like a lot of the stuff that people are talking about yeah it feels like there's a lot of potential with the trump administration the problem with that is that it starts to feel a little bit like there's so much to cover that it's hard for us to know what to focus on so that's been our main project figuring out you know it feels a little bit like we're being blasted with a fire hose right now (laughs) in terms of the news Um, And so focusing on one project or one area of focus has been something that we need to, that we spend a lot of time talking about. Do you feel like you guys are under a lot of pressure because you are kind of under a digital platform to really churn out a lot of stories like regularly? 
you know, that's a good question. So before I worked at the special projects desk, I was an editor at Jezebel, which is, as I'm sure you know, it's, you know, it's a blog that publishes a new story every 15 to 20 minutes. And the reason for that, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that, but there mainly there's reader appetite for that. Readers go to Jezebel.com expecting a new story every 15 minutes, and they expect a huge variety of stories. So Jezebel is a women's blog that covers everything from politics to pop culture, which is a wide variety of topics. So there's no like shortage of stuff to cover, you know. And uh, when I worked there, there was a huge amount of pressure to cover news events meaningfully right when they were happening. At Jezebel, we we use this word news blogging, which is basically what it sounds like. It's um, coming up with blogs that react to and respond to the news at the moment or moments following a news event. And that doesn't always adhere to a schedule. So like during the summer, um, I remember complaining about the fact that seemingly every Friday night at 5 p.m. there would be some huge political announcement. (laughs) And, you know, so we would all have to scramble to our computers to respond to it on the blog. And news blogging is not just reporting the news, right? We're not like AP reporters, we're bloggers. And so the mandate is to report the information in a way that's meaningful for our audience. Um, So at Jezebel, that would be often, you know, like funny. Jezebel has a a funny voice. Or, uh, you know, connecting it to other coverage we have done previously, um, which is the key to blogging, you know, as opposed to just reporting the information straight. The special projects desk doesn't have the same mandate. So as an editor, I don't have to run scrambling to my computer at five o'clock on Friday if there is um, breaking news. What we do have to do is, you know, like stay on top of the news and make sure that it is, you know, like not escaping our attention but use it more to think about what to investigate further later. Investigative reporting, I guess, in that way, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but um, in that way is sort of different from the everyday work of reporting. Um, They're just sort of different muscles. To give you an example, um, we, right now I'm in the middle of doing a piece on, or working with a writer, Anna Merlin, on a piece on Sebastian Gorka. And obviously he's a guy who's in the news a lot, (laughs) Um, but her reporting is on a very specific part of his background. It's on his military background. And so, you know, she doesn't have to immediately go to her computer and blog every time he is in the news just because she's on the Sebastian Gorka beat, but she does need to keep up with what's going on with him in case that will like give her a lead into a larger piece reporting that she's working on. Yeah. So that's sort of like the difference between, or to answer your question about how much pressure we feel to respond uh, meaningfully and quickly, it, de- it depends. Um, and for special projects, less than um, for a blog like Jezebel. All right. So do you see any particular benefits of existing on a purely digital platform like you do? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, so I, I used to work in a magazine. I used to work at the New Yorker and at the New Yorker, you know, the magazine comes out once a week, all at the same time. 
um, you know, like nine stories will appear, uh, even on, you know, the New Yorker publishes all of its print stories on its website, newyorker.com, but they still all appear at the same time, basically, mm-hmm. um, with sort of few exceptions. When you publish only on the internet, there is no moment in the week when everything comes out. It's a, it's a project that continues all the time. It's important as an editor of a website to, you know, like modulate how much information is coming uh, out of your website, right? So like, you don't want to have five stories go up at the very end of the day, right? Because nobody reads stories at the end of the day. Everybody's commuting. Um, you want to have a, a good balance of types of stories, which it has in common with, um, print editing. We don't have what I think is the luxury of having all week to work on a story. We have to kind of do it right now. If we hear information, we got to, we got to put it on the internet right now. That is more true for a blog than it is for like the special projects desk where I work. That is much more like magazine editing in the sense that we put something up um, after we've worked on it for a good amount of time and it's not necessarily tied to the news cycle in terms of hours, it's tied to the news cycle in terms of days or even weeks. Many of the blogs at Gizmodo Media Group, we're really sensitive to timing. So like if some other blog will beat us to a story or beat us to a scoop, that can feel really frustrating. And even if it's only by five minutes, that is, you know, we consider that sort of a failure <laughs> if some other competitor blog beat us to something by a few minutes, even though, you know, like we may not even share readership with them exclusively, you know, um, it still feels like we've messed up in some way if we're beaten, which feels like a phenomenon that belongs to the internet. Well, actually I take that back. I take that back. That doesn't belong to the internet, but it is exacerbated by the speed of the internet. That makes sense. In like the same vein, something that really belongs to the internet are comment sections. How do you Uh, guys kind of work with those in your regular reporting? So yes, I don't know that the comment section is fruitful for reporting all that much, to be honest. I think that the comment section is a really good tool for building community. Um, It's really enjoyable for readers. I can't think of a time when a writer has gotten a ton of good information from the public comments. What we do get good information from and good tips from are our public tips lines. So uh, we have this email address, tips at gizmodomedia.com. Anyone can email that. You can email it uh, with encryption, if security is very important to you, if the tip is, if you want to tip anonymously, we have that available. We have a system called Secure Drop, which is run by the Freedom of the Press Foundation that allows us to uh, receive information as anonymously as possible. And that is a really good resource for us um, because people can talk to us without being fearful of their identities being revealed. The comment section is kind of a different beast in the sense that that is more for conversation that happens in a public sphere in the, like in the public world of the bottom of our pieces. So at the bottom of every piece, there's uh, you know, like a, a comment section, a very traditional comment section. And there was a time at this company before we were 
acquired by Univision, which is our parent company, when um, we really tried engaging with the commenters. And that was something that was very important to us. It's definitely less important now. It functions a little more the way that like social media does and that it can, you know, that it really has a social function. But as a reporting function, you know, it, it depends, but really it's, it's not as helpful to us for reporting as, um, the tips line is. Do you guys feel like you have to moderate your comment sections heavily? We don't do that. We rely upon the blogs where our pieces appear to do that. Jezebel does moderate its tips, um, pretty aggressively. The comments is I mean, sorry, I said tips. I meant comments. Um, The comments section is a place where things can be really fun, but they can also get really aggressive really fast. Back when Jezebel was owned by Gawker Media, before I worked here, um, there was an issue where there were a lot of um, like very offensive gifts that were being posted in the comments section and the company wasn't adequately addressing it, according to um, the people who worked at Jezebel at the time, which, like I said, I wasn't there. And the way that they dealt with this was by writing about it on Jezebel.com. So that's to say that, like, yes, (laughs) comment moderation is extremely important. um, And a lot of work goes into making sure that it stays appropriate in the comments. You mentioned social media presence as well. I know that for a lot of online reporters, they kind of uh, they like to tweet out stuff. How, uh, do you, how do you guys kind of work with your social media presence? Well, it depends on the story. When I was at Jezebel, it was helpful to, uh, on one story I, t- I tweeted out and uh, posted on Facebook about this story that one of our writers, Ellie Sheckett, was working on about um, how teachers were responding to the election. So for that, social media was really useful because we don't have just a million teachers who we can ask things of. And social media can be really good for that kind of crowdsourcing. I am not a huge fan of like suggesting that you have a scoop publicly. You know, if you have information, you don't want to spread it around until you have all the information. Right. Um, So sometimes you'll see on Twitter, people like watch this space for a huge post about the Trump administration. I'm not a huge fan of that. And not just because of the optics of it. It looks a little bit, it's a little bit like braggy for lack of a better word. But the bigger problem is that social media has the tendency to make things, to oversimplify things. So, you know, if you have a powerful piece of information. Twitter's a good way to spread it, but like a single tweet is probably not the way to do it. I would say wait until you have the whole story, tweet a link to that whole story, give people the opportunity to read your story and respond to it meaningfully in its entirety, not like a little trailer for your story (laughs) and then later release the whole story. I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, That obviously is different. I think that's different from what you're asking about though, which is like reporting on Twitter and soliciting stories on Twitter. Or just in general, do you think that having a online presence helps facilitate your work or does it, is it kind of a detriment at some point? Cause people could be like tweeting at you, like constantly saying like, I have an idea and you're just kind of, in my experience as an editor, it um, completely depends on the reporter. Some reporters have really um, productive relationships with 
Twitter in particular. And for some, it's a distraction. So like, I'll give you an example of a reporter who I work with, who has a very productive relationship with Twitter. Um, her name's Ashley Feinberg. And she did a piece two weeks ago about, um, James Comey's, the CIA director, James Comey's Twitter account. And she basically tracked down his private Twitter account. Um, and she did it through a lot of familiarity with how Twitter functions. Um, which is, you know, a completely different way of reporting than like gabbing on the phone with, you know, congressional aides with loose lips, you know, which is a really important part of reporting still. That's a huge thing that we all need to be better at. But um, it's also a good way to use Twitter, right? She like, Twitter was itself the story in that case. And uh, her familiarity with it helped her get this piece of reporting other for other people. It's just entertainment. Like, frankly, for me, Twitter is sort of just entertainment. It's just for fun. Um, it's just a way to read other people's stuff. So it varies. That's very interesting. Um, cause I know there are companies that sometimes want you to moderate your own Twitter accounts or your own social media because you are affiliated with that company. So the New York times famously did this at Gizmodo Media Group, there's a tradition of not doing that at all. <laughs> I don't have much firsthand experience about what it's like to have your social media presence dictated by your employer. I don't really know what that feels like. Uh, we were recently acquired by Univision, uh, which is a large media corporation. Um, and our code of conduct requires that we say that we are Univision employees when we're tweeting. Not a lot of people do. I don't quite know what to say about that. <laughs> there has been a lot of productive discussion, I think, about um, the role that opinion plays for online reporters. So, and Twitter has been sort of a flashpoint because people who are supposed to be reporting just the truth for, for a living get in trouble from their employers because they're tweeting something like, you know, particularly about the Trump administration that would seem to be biased. But the problem with that, in my view, is that if Trump, you know, lies about something and you call him a liar, I mean, it's difficult to say that that isn't something that that isn't an opinion that is offered in good faith. Mm -hmm. And so I don't necessarily know that it's productive to the mission of news organizations to limit their reporters abilities to uh, be frank, you know, like that frankness is sort of uh, part of the mission of news organizations. It's important to be fair, obviously, and base your opinions on what is true. To say that it's somehow inherently biased to be offering analysis? Well, I don't agree with that. That makes sense. Um, well, I'm not going to hold you up too long. I'm just going to ask you one more question. Okay. Um, and it's an easy one. Do you have any advice for people currently looking to join the publishing workforce? I don't know. Um, <laughs> my advice is focus more on doing work with integrity than getting noticed for your work. Don't worry so much about how many Twitter followers you have. Don't worry so much about prestige. Worry about whether the stories that you are writing or editing are meaningful. That's my advice. And one more piece of advice. Um, kindness really counts. <laughs> That's my other piece of advice. Can't go wrong. 
<laughs> um, anything else? Uh, no, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this with me. Yeah, no sweat. This has been the Pubcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.thepubcast.org.